I-N-G. It's off the coast of Oban. And we stayed in a cottage which a Christian lady very generously allowed us to use. And in the cottage was a sort of folder with information about the island, which I read through carefully. And there was one particular article that gripped my attention so much so that I wrote it down because I thought one of these days I'm going to tell the people in Charlotte Chapel about this because it will be relevant to a particular sermon. So let me tell you what was in it. It was about a man who lived on the island two centuries before. His name was Alexander Campbell and he founded a very strict Christian sect called the Covenanters of Lorne. L-O-R-N-E. He's buried on the island in the village of Kilchatton in the cemetery in a grave which he dug himself with a headstone that he carved for himself. And he recorded his dying testimony. And in this dying testimony he listed everything that he was against. Over 100 things. Here are some of them that I noted. He was against the Church of England as idolaters because it used a prayer book. Against the Church of Scotland as popish. Against the Reformed Presbyterians as hypocrites. Against George III as tolerant. Against the Low Countries as unkind to strangers. Against steamships that I quote keep their course against the weather, that presumptuous sin. Against the farmers of corn, who leave not the winnowing to God's draft between doors. Against parasols, sectarians, my brother Duncan Campbell. <laughs> play actors, dancing schools, pictures, Women that wear Babylonish garments, that are rigged out with stretched necks, tinkling as they go, and against men that have whiskers. In a masterly understatement, the minister of Kilchatton Church described Alexander Campbell's group as one whose charity is not extensive. When he died, the Covenanters of Lorne died with him. So he was the only remaining member. Having expelled everyone else for being too lax in their views. Well, it's amusing, isn't it? And yet in the back of our minds, it's also sad because although we may not be in such an extreme situation as that, it's a sad and tragic thing that Christians have a propensity to fall out with one another. And should we think this is some kind of modern phenomenon? Or at least one that the pristine churches in the New Testament we're immune from. We learn otherwise when we read its pages, and especially those letters in the New Testament that were written to the first Christian churches that were planted around the Mediterranean world. 
And on Sunday mornings, if you've been with us in Charlotte Chapel, if not, if you're a visitor, you may like to know we've been studying one of these little letters. Written to a church in the Greek city of Philippi by its founder, a man named Paul, who was an apostle or a special messenger of Jesus Christ. We've chosen as our title and theme for this series some words taken from the second chapter in which Paul describes the Christians in Philippi as shining like stars in the universe. We have a verse of the year card. If you're visiting, you can take one with you. We even have a bookmark as well to remind ourselves of our theme that we're to shine like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of life. And in this letter... Paul is concerned that nothing will dim, let alone extinguish, the light of this Christian constellation in Philippi. So as we saw last week, he urges them in chapter 1 verse 27, he says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, then whether I come and see you, or only hear about it in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. He says, you need to stand firm against external opposition, which can threaten the life and witness of any church. But there is another danger that every church faces, not just from outside, but from inside, the danger of internal dissension, which can also damage and destroy the life and witness of a church. And it's this that Paul turns to, and we turn to as we come to our verses that the children illustrated so wonderfully this morning <coughs> in chapter 2. Now, of course, the chapter numbers in our Bible, you probably know, and the verses are not original. Uh, Paul just wrote this as one long letter, and he's actually carrying on in chapter 2. It's not in our translation, but he literally says, Therefore, in view of what I said before, therefore, if... And so I want to look at this theme this morning. I, another change, I changed the title. Uh, new title I suggest this morning is, United We Serve. And will you turn then back to chapter 2 that you saw on the screen before, and Pip was speaking to the children and to all of us. It's page 1179. It's helped to have a Bible. We're going to look closely at what it says, as we do every week. We try to understand what the text says, and then to apply it to ourselves as individuals and as a church. Let me just read the verses again. Chapter 2, 1 to 4. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's God's word for us this morning, these 
four verses. Now, let me suggest with simplicity that we can divide them into two parts. In verses 1 and 2, there is a reminder to these Christians in Philippi and to us here in Charlotte Chapel or whatever church you belong to if you're a visitor, the reasons for Christian unity. And there are a series of ifs and thens. Four ifs followed by four thens. And then secondly, verses 3 to 4, what we might call the results of Christian unity. And here we have two pairs of don'ts and do's, or don't but. Right? You can work this out for yourself, it's quite straightforward here, but let's look at it more closely then. First of all then, the reasons for Christian unity. Look again at the repeated word if. In verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Now the word if here does not mean that Paul is in any doubt about whether they have these things. It's not like the beggar who you walk past on the street and he says, spare some change, not knowing whether you've got any or not. No, it is the beggar who sees you with a handful of change and says, spare some change, since I know that you have some, please give me some. In fact, you could actually take the word if out and replace it with the word since. Or we could paraphrase it, if, as is indeed the case, you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, comfort from his love, fellowship with the Spirit, tenderness and compassion. Uh, one writer, Peter O'Brien, comments, the apostle urges his dear Christian friends on the basis of supernatural, objective realities that have already occurred in their experience. These things are already true of the Christians in Philippi. When did they become true? They became true when Paul, this messenger of Jesus, visited their city on one of his missionary journeys, preached the good news about Jesus Christ, how he died for their sins and rose again. They responded in faith and trusted in Christ. And at that moment they began to receive these blessings that he lists here, these four ifs. They're true of every person who is a genuine Christian. If you don't know anything about these things, then can I gently suggest that you're probably not a Christian in the New Testament sense of the word. So what are they? Look with me at them a little more closely. First of all, he says, if you have any encouragement in Christ. Uh, the NIV, our translation here, translates it, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. That's a kind of expansion of what it actually says. It literally says, if you have any encouragement in Christ. The word encouragement is a lovely word. It's found quite a lot in the New Testament in all sorts of forms and in different uses. It's translated different ways. It means encouragement, exhortation, comfort. Literally it means to come alongside someone to help them in time of need. To encourage them, to get alongside someone. Uh, Jesus used a related word, John's Gospel tells us, to describe the coming Holy Spirit. He said, I'm going to send someone else like me. And some of our translations translate it, the comforter is translated literally as the paraclete, that's the word that's used here, parakletos, 
paraplasis, it's the verb that's used here, to come alongside. However, here, Christ is the focus, not the Holy Spirit. And he says, you get this encouragement, this comfort, in Christ. Whenever you see the little phrase, in Christ, in the New Testament, it always refers to our status if we are Christians. That we are in Christ, that we belong to Christ, that we are in a relationship with Christ. And it refers to all the privileges that go with it. So, in another letter written to the Christians in Ephesus, Paul reminds them of all that God has done for them in Christ. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then he goes on with one huge long sentence that goes, it's just one long sentence of about seven verses that goes right through, listing all these benefits and privileges. Now, if you are in Christ, then what a comfort it is to know that all these privileges are yours. No matter what happened to you this week, no matter this morning how you feel, whether like me you've been struggling with a cough and cold for the past ten days and wondering when you're going to get through this, whether you've got a bad family situation, whether you've suffered a bereavement, whether your job is insecure, whatever it may be, the greatest encouragement is that you are, if you are a Christian, if you have turned from your sin, put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are in Christ. You have this comfort, this great encouragement. It's one of the reasons why we meet together like this. We sing these hymns and we meet with fellow Christians and we say, it's a great source of unity. We're in Christ. What an encouragement. And that's not all. He goes on to say, if you have any encouragement from love. I put in brackets, God's love. Uh, the NIV again has assumed the love refers back to Christ. Most people think it probably refers to God the Father's love for us. Uh, the word comfort here is a very similar word to the one that we found earlier on that we just looked at. However, it's got more of a specific meaning to do with speech. It's to do with speaking to someone in a comforting way. Especially in time of need. If you know the Gospel stories, <coughs> you may remember when Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, died, his two sisters were mourning, and we read that all the Jewish people came out to comfort them. They came alongside them to speak words of comfort, to say how sorry they were, to commiserate with them. But here the comfort source is God himself. It's as though God comes alongside us and speaks words of love to us. Maybe this morning you feel that nobody loves you. Nobody ever tells you that they love you. Here's the wonderful thing. If you're a Christian, God constantly speaks to your heart. As you read his word, as you meet with his people, as you meet with them in prayer, God speaks words of love and he says, I love you. You are mine. Of course, Christ loves us. But the Father loves us. The Father loves us. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And so another apostle, John, writing wonderful words in 1 John 3, verse 1, he says, See how much the Father has loved us, that we should be called children of God. 
That is what we are. And if the reference here is to the Father, then it fits in very neatly because we have the Christ, God the Son, God the Father, and then he goes on to talk about the work of God the Holy Spirit. If any fellowship with the Spirit. The word fellowship means something that you have in common with someone else, that you share with them. It's the word that we looked at back in chapter 1 about... um, Verse 5, he talks about your partnership in the gospel. It's the same word, fellowship in the gospel, a shared enterprise. Here it refers to the new life which the Philippians received when they became Christians. See, when you become a Christian, God not only forgives your sin, He not only promises you a new life forever and eternity, but He puts His Spirit within you. And through that indwelling Holy Spirit, you experience a living relationship with God. It's a relationship. Maybe you're not a Christian this morning, you think, I'd love to be a Christian, I could never keep it up. How do you keep all those rules and regulations? It's not a matter of rules and regulations. It's a matter of a new relationship with God. He comes to live within you by His Spirit to help you to live like Jesus. In the same way that children of the same parents share physical life, fellowship in common, So when you become a Christian, you come to share spiritual life. This is characteristic of all Christians. Again, Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. That's part of the spirit that we drink. We share together in that experience. There's a relationship here with what we call the grace, which we're going to say at the end of the service. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with us all forevermore. Amen. It's the last verse of 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. But Paul has one final if. He says, if you have any tenderness and compassion. Here the construction is a little bit different. There are two related words here. Tenderness, compassion. The word tenderness is literally, again, it's a word we've seen before, it's literally in Greek, bowels. In the ancient world, people thought your emotions were seated in your bowels. We would say heart. Love you with all my heart. You must have saying to someone you love, I love you with all my bowels. Well, it doesn't sound quite right to us, does it? But uh, if you lived in the ancient world, it, it would have been fine. And compassion is the feelings that that gut feeling produces. Gut feeling is probably the right word for it. It's the feelings that flow from it and experience. This word compassion is a word that's used a lot of Jesus in the Gospels. You know, when Jesus saw someone who was demon-possessed, someone who was sick, someone who was bereaved, he had compassion on them. It's the word Jesus used in the parable of the prodigal son. You know, where the father's looking down the road and when he sees his son coming, he has compassion and he runs and embraces him. It's what all the Christians used to call a felt awareness of God's presence in your life. Through being united with Christ, being comforted by knowing the love of the Father, by having fellowship with the Holy Spirit, it all becomes real and true in that you begin to feel something. 
It flows out of that. It's not something that you engender, you know, let's, let's rip up some feelings. It's something that flows out of that relationship. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this. It's almost impossible because it's a unique experience. But let me give you what I think is the nearest human equivalent. And as with all illustrations, don't push it too far, but hope it will be helpful. Um, last weekend we visited friends down south who we've known for over 30 years. And uh, their daughter was visiting them. We, we've known her since she was a little baby. She's now a grown woman with her own children. She's got a little girl of a year and a half and she's just had a new baby. And we went for a walk in the Surrey countryside uh, and I was walking alongside her, pushing the, she was pushing the baby in the pushchair. We were talking about what it means to be a mother. To have a child of your own. And we were talking about, it's hard to explain, unless not everyone has that privilege, if you've got children of your own, the way you feel about them, is it, is it not different from any other relationship? It's different from falling in love with the person who you marry. It, 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 it just, it's hard to explain, it's a kind of gut feeling, isn't it? Of a, of a deep... As a, if you know what the word vestigial means, I think that's what it means, but look at the dictionary when you get home. But it's, it's that deep gut feeling of a relationship that is unique, that binds you to that child. Deep within you, when that child emerges from the womb, you look at that baby and everybody else looks at that little red baby and says, God, looks like a monkey. And the mother says, and the, the mother says, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Uh, it's just so perfect, wonderful, oh! Now, it's an imperfect analogy, alright, but when you become a child of God, when you know that you belong to Christ, when God the Father speaks his words of love to you and you realise that God loves you personally, when you experience the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit, there is, there should be within you a deep welling up of tenderness and compassion within you. It should be true of us if we're Christians. Now, Paul's point here is, if these things are true of you this morning, then they should affect your relationship with everyone else who has a similar experience of God's grace. Who are in a similar relationship with God. Go back to the beggar with a handful of money who asks you for some spare change. He says, spare some change, but will you? But if he were your brother, there would surely be no doubt in his mind. In fact, you remember the Apostle John says that in, in, in his letter, several times in his first letter. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to, what? Lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions, sees his brother in need, but has no pity in him, on him, how can the love of God be in him? 1 John 3, 16 and 17. It follows logically. If, then. It should go without saying. You shouldn't have to explain to a new mother why she should feed and care for her baby. It's the natural response of being a mother, and in rare cases where it isn't, 
the case, there's something wrong with them and they need help. Now Paul's worry is that there are signs that the Christians in this church in Philippi haven't grasped the connection between their vertical relationship with God and their horizontal relationship with one another. They aren't in Alexander Campbell country. But we learn later in this letter there are two leading women in the church who aren't getting along with one another. And this, when Paul hears about it, it fills him with alarm and with sorrow. And he says, look, make my joy full. If you have all these things, then make my joy complete. And he then adds, for thens. Alright, look back at the text again. First of all, he says, make my joy complete by being right-minded. This doesn't mean that everybody in the church all thinks exactly the same, like automatons. Rather, the word here means having the same attitude. The attitude of a servant. We'll see next week, God willing, as you come to verse 5, he says again, using the same word, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It means putting aside secondary differences. It means being prepared to have the same attitude, that of a servant. Later on, when he addresses these two women in chapter 4 over the page, he says, I plead with Euodia, I plead with Syntyche, to agree with each other in the Lord. It's the same word, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, the only way you can do that is if you have the same love. So he says, make my joy complete, secondly, by having the same love. It's that Christ-like love that we sang about that Jesus said will be the hallmark of his followers. John 13, 34, 35. A new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. It's a love like the love of Jesus that gives to others sacrificial giving. And that leads to a deep unity among Christians. He says, being one in spirit. Now the word spirit here is not the same word as spirit before. It's literally soul. What he's saying is deep down, if you have this same experience, you are soulmates with everyone else with whom you share it. And linked in with this is his final appeal. Then, being one in purpose that together you are focused on one goal, to live for Christ, partners, fellowship of the gospel together, making Christ known, relating to one another within the fellowship of the local church. Now, what I simply want to point out here is the logic here, the reasons behind Christian unity. You cannot impose Christian... The great problem with the ecumenical movement is that it tries to impose unity from above. You can only have unity when you have unity below. That when the foundations are the same, if, then, look at it again, very simply, if you have any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in God's love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in the Spirit, being one in the purpose. Being one in purpose. So, before we move on to the second section much more briefly, what about the ifs? Are they true of you? 
just go back on the screen, will you, Andrew, to the previous one. If, just look at them again. If, if you have any encouragement, do you have encouragement in Christ? Do you know the comfort of God's love? Do you have fellowship with the Holy Spirit who witnesses that you're God's child? you feel that tenderness and compassion? If not, why not? Well, maybe you're not a Christian. But if you are, what about the nuns? Are they true of you? Are these characteristics seen not only in your life, but in the way you relate to one another within a church like Charlotte Chapel? Like-minded, sharing the same love, one in spirit, one in purpose. Let me put it practically. How are you getting along with the fellow Christians in the church to which you belong? Or do you not belong at all? You've fallen out with someone. Oh, maybe like Alexander Campbell, everyone. And if you belong to a local church, is it marked by that kind of unity here? Every Christian in church should be like this. But sadly, many are not. They conduct themselves in a way that is not worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the result is that our credibility in the outside world is diminished. And we don't shine like stars. We just like the same background around us. United we stand, divided we fall. But the way that a church stands united is when the members serve one another rather than focusing on their own needs. Hence our title, United we serve. And the sentences that follow in verses 3 and 4 show us how this looks in real life. The results of Christian unity. Here's a description of the kind of behaviour and attitude that should characterise Christians within a church. And he uses a pair of sentences here with a negative, don't, followed by a positive, do or but. The first he says is, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain deceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. The word translated selfish ambition is one that we met in chapter 1 when Paul talks about those rival preachers who are only in it for what they can get out of it. It's a word used of politics, of politicians who are only in it for the money or personal gain and prestige. Paul says they preach Christ out of envy, rivalry is the word. It's linked in with another word, vain conceit, which literally means empty glory where the person's focus is on elevating themselves, putting themselves on a pedestal, where everyone, including themselves, can admire them, and praise and worship them. Now, Paul contrasts this with the word that should characterise the Christian. It's the word humility. It's a very interesting word. It was a characteristic that was despised in the Roman and Greek world in which Paul and the Christians in Philippi lived, because Philippi was a Greek... Colony. It was a Roman uh, city, but in a Greek colony. And nobody wanted to be called humble, or the word humility here. A humble person was at the bottom of the pile and didn't count for anything. But Paul says, this is radical thinking, he says, if you're a Christian, you should be characterised by humility. That's not the grovelling Uriah Heap type of demeanour. What it is, it's the attitude of a person who has fallen on his knees or her knees in the presence of God before God's glory 
the one to whom all glory is given, who recognizes that all that I am and have is due to him alone. Now when you're on that position down there, then there's nowhere else to look except up. And you look around and have a different perspective on other people. You don't see yourself as better than them in the pecking order. You see yourself at the bottom. And that's why you can say, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Peter O'Brien comments helpfully again. Such an attitude presupposes a due sense of one's own unworthiness, especially before God, as well as a readiness to see and rejoice in the good in fellow believers. Now how often we do exactly the opposite. We look at all the bad points we can in fellow Christians. And we talk about them. Now the model for this is Jesus himself. You remember the call of Jesus. Take my yoke upon you, said Jesus. Learn from me. For I'm gentle, and here's the same word again. I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And Jesus demonstrated this. He left the glory of heaven. He who was fully God, and we'll see next week again in this wonderful hymn that follows, he humbled himself. Being found in appearance as a man, here's the same word again, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now that's the example we should follow, the attitude we should adopt. And we learn, how do you learn to be humble? Let me put it this way. You can only learn humility in fellowship with some fellow Christians. Because it's a relational term. If you opt out of church and belonging, you can never learn to be humble. It's impossible. In his book on Philippians, George Mitchell is called Chained and Cheerful. It's well worth reading if you know George. He's preached for us here. He says, we learn absolute humility only at the feet of Jesus. We learn relative humility as we submit willingly to one another. This knocks the rough edges off like the contact between pebbles on the beach when the tide rushes in and rattles them together. I kind of like that. You know, a church is like a group of people who are all rough pebbles rattling against each other and the rough edges are being knocked off. And sometimes it's quite a painful process. And the temptation is to say, I'm getting out of here. Notice what follows from it, the second thing. Don't look only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. The word look here is a word of purposeful intent. To fix your eyes on something, to focus on someone. And here the focus is not on yourself, but on other people. It's to look at everything through the eyes of others and how it will affect them. To seek their help and welfare before your own. To seek what will help and encourage them. And it means therefore laying aside my own concerns and focus. Now you may say, well, if I do that, what about my own needs and concerns? Which may well be genuine. Who will look out for them? Well, the answer is in the fellowship of the church, everybody else. A church is a fellowship of people who are all looking out for each other, not for themselves. 
And you do that within a local church. It's hard in a church of this size to do it, which is why we have what we call fellowship groups, where you meet regularly, fortnightly in this church, with a bunch of 12, 15 people, and you get to know one another, and the interests and concerns of one another. <coughs> and you pray for one another. You encourage one another. One of the loveliest things I've noticed as a pastor in this church, since we had fellowship groups, you may say this is a very strange thing, but think about it for a moment. I've noticed since we have fellowship groups that when a member of the church dies and we have a thanksgiving service in the church it's not only the family who are usually there but all the other members who can of the fellowship group to which they belong. Interesting isn't it? They have a group of people who care that much about them. Fellowship groups who gather around when they're ill or in need. And notice the individuality here. When each of the members are looking out for each other, notice the repeated word here, then you have a united church. United, we serve. And what a witness in the world where everyone looks out for number one. Well, lovely, with the kids, wasn't he? I am important. I am first. Someone has said, love begins when someone else's needs are more important than mine. But what a tragedy when a church that bears the name of Jesus Christ is characterized by people vying for position and power, looking out for their own interests, we need to examine ourselves and our church in the light of this. Not least as we elect elders. Elders are going to be elected in this church primarily to serve. Can I say to those who will stand who won't become elders, who maybe aren't elected, I hope... If you aren't elected, you'll say, that's fine. Where else can I serve in this church? Almost finished. Let me conclude by asking you a question. We've been thinking about the unity within a church. My question to you is this. How much does it matter to you? Now, if you go home today see somebody wasn't at church and they say what was it about in Charlotte Chapel well you say to say well it's about a really important subject wow so, oh, it's about you know usual stuff about unity in the church you know and uh, we ought to be kind to one another there was not much in it for me exactly it's striking Paul is writing this from the privation of a prison cell chained to Roman soldiers awaiting a trial which could lead to his summary execution. And he writes to these Christians in Philippi and he says, there's one thing that would really make me happy, that would really make my cup of joy overflow to the full. It's a lovely expression. It's nothing to do with his circumstances. It's to do with them and their relationships with one another. See, Paul practices what he preaches. He's a servant of the church. That's why he can say later on, follow me as I follow Christ. This is very important. Something we need to focus on. As we said at the beginning, Barry read those verses, we need to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Ephesians 4 verse 3. Now, how do you do that? You do it by committing yourself to a local church and the members whom God has placed in it. You didn't choose your brothers and sisters in your physical family, and you don't choose them in your spiritual family. 
God puts the people next to you in a fellowship like Charlotte Chapel in order to knock the rough edges off you. And I simply say to you this morning, don't walk away. Or you may not end up like Alexander Campbell, you know, the only one in your church. That is a great tragedy. It's possible to be a Christian and to die out of fellowship with God's people in this church. That really is a tragedy. We need God's help. His renewing power to help us to do that. Let's just bow in a moment's prayer. Lord, as we reflect on your word this morning...